So it's two years, almost exactly to the day since I found out that I was carrying this virus in my bloodstream. And these have been two years of really great upheaval and challenge and uncertainty. And certainly one of the ways I feel that I've been most deeply challenged, perhaps even more than the physical difficulty and pain, is on the questions of faith and doubt and self-acceptance. I feel that these questions are really ever-presently alive in my life. And I ask that this afternoon we explore these very important and fundamental questions together. I feel really privileged to be here doing this this afternoon because I have no doubt that I have much to learn from your own wrangling and wrestling with these questions. I'd like to ask that in beginning we sit just perhaps for a minute quietly together, that we have an opportunity to reflect on these questions personally in our lives. Following that I'll speak hopefully for no longer than 40-45 minutes and what time remains after that I hope there'll be a lively and probing discussion. I also know that you're at the tail end of a really long, massive retreat, and if anybody feels a need to either fall asleep or, or, <laughs> or leave at any point, really know that's absolutely fine with me. Considering the question of faith and doubt, faith in the practice, faith perhaps that freedom is possible, faith in each moment. Heeding the call to a life of wakefulness and honesty and a love free of attachment is, I feel, the most courageous and noble challenge facing any human being. And this challenge must call into question every assumption that we have about ourselves, every idea about who or what it is that we are, and every preconceived notion that there might be about the world. A real stepping into the unexplored and the unknown. A movement towards the great mystery. 
and a journey where we are called to die to all attachments, to all delusion, and to all sense of security. This is a call to warriorship. And for me personally, I feel a great challenge to our spirits. And it's immensely hard to do. This path of freedom, this path of purification, is not always easy. As we open to the depths of who we are and the truth and the true nature of the world in which we live, and as the truth of the world reveals itself to us, there come times, certainly my experience, of really shattering heartbreak, of profound sadness and grief, and enormous pain, both physical and mental. And all this, of course, along with those times of joy and times of happiness and calm. What a challenge overall this is to our spirits, to our sense of commitment. And sometimes we run, and sometimes we don't. And certainly for me, if I do, it really doesn't seem to be all that far. And the question that is important, really, is where does the resource come to stick with it and just to begin again? In the end, it's this force of faith and trust and confidence that give us the willingness and ability and the sheer guts to continue. These three factors of faith and trust and self-acceptance are really so interconnected and interrelated. It's not really possible to explore one without embracing the others to some degree. And I feel that this issue of faith and doubt and self-acceptance is often a very difficult one for us in the West. I'd like to begin by exploring carefully what is meant by them. Faith is the drive towards that which is beyond description, the truth, the mystery. And the spiritual life begins with some degree of faith. It is not of the mind, it is not of words, it's really not of, the, it's not of belief or it's not of the intellect. Rather it is intuitive. beyond words, beyond the mind. And it is critical, for without faith we'd not be here, we'd not meditate, we'd not make the great effort that we do. The texts say that faith is the doorway through which all positive qualities manifest. Consider that for a moment, the doorway through which all positive qualities manifest. And for Westerners, often, this word is a difficult one. It's misunderstood so often. In the beginning, I'd like to carefully consider exactly what is meant by faith in this tradition. There are three kinds of faith. The first is what is known as blind faith. Belief in something outside of ourselves, 
And if it's a leader, and that leader turns out to be good and trustworthy, then we're fortunate, we're lucky, we're blessed. But if that leader turns out to be misleading or hurtful, the consequences can be devastating. An example of the extreme of this blind faith would be the religious fanaticism that prevails in our world and all the dangers that accompany it. And the tone of this blind faith is one of rigidity, closeness and defensiveness, most often avoiding possibilities and at the same time threatened by them too. And the important thing about blind faith is that it is not verified or referenced to our experience in any way. It is really outside of that. Blind faith. The next kind of faith is known as bright faith. The texts say that bright faith brightens and gladdens the heart and mind. And for many it is this bright faith that is the first arising of faith in the spiritual path. For me in South Africa 11 years ago, when I met Joseph Goldstein in Zululand, it's a real feeling of the brightness of the faith at that time. And it took me so far. Often on hearing the Dharma for the first time, there is an arising of this bright faith. Perhaps in meeting somebody who is inspiring, seeing an image or perhaps a beautiful sunset. There is an element of devotion too in this bright faith. And it's important. It inspires confidence and it gives us energy. It really gets us going at the beginning so that we might set forth and heed our own particular call to destiny. And yet, what is important about this bright faith is that it too occurs without knowledge or wisdom. We can still be fooled. There is really no wisdom yet to question the object of our reverence. So there's this blind faith and there's the bright faith. The third kind of faith is known as verified faith. And the arising of verified faith, for me certainly, has been one of the greatest happinesses of the unfolding of the practice. As we see the truths of the Dharma for ourselves, one has in effect verified the Dharma that one has been hearing. Faith becomes true, checked out, and verified to some degree. And as the mindfulness gets stronger and the insight deeper, we see more and our verified faith grows. And the importance of suffering is really great too when considering this verified faith. For it is the suffering that gives us the juice to examine and to continue. For if there is no suffering, we'd really not be here making the effort that we do. And in this way, suffering is a conditioning factor for faith. 
it really awakens us to faith. The Buddha said that suffering ripens as confusion or suffering ripens as search. And it is out of our contact with suffering, out of our despair, that with faith the energy for liberation comes. The Buddha also said, you too come see. You too come see. And each insight, again and again, deepens our faith until it becomes unshakable. We become impervious to the opinions of others. We become so sure. We know a deep trust and faith in the spirit of our inquiry and our seeing. And the wisdom of our inquiry and our seeing gives depth and power to our faith. And ultimately, in the meditation practice, we are called to a faith in each moment. Relinquishing the past and the future, surrendering even the most minuscule resistance, if possible. Feeling the pain of how much we want things to be reliable, how much we want our world to be solid. We yearn to feel the ground beneath our feet more firmly than it is. And it takes huge faith to let go of this deep existential yearning. And living more with what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. A quote from Jaja No, who spoke so much about faith in his book, Do You See What I See? He says, radical acceptance is radical acknowledgement of the presence of truth in this very moment. The only thing to do is to do nothing, but accept truth in all ways, as all things, at all times, in all forms, in all ways. To let go, to accept, it is necessary only to give up your concerns and your fears. It's not a matter of whether or not faith is present in your life. It is. It's only a question of whether you place your faith in truth and reality or in your considerations, your abstractions and thoughts about it. Do not doubt whether or not you are practicing faith. Consider only where it is placed. Radical acceptance is the practice of faith. It's really no coincidence that I'm giving this talk now. Over the years, increasingly, in the last years, I've been humbled and I guess strengthened by my own grappling and wrangling with faith. I'd like to speak personally, if I may, for a moment. When I was diagnosed two years ago, that time felt very dire. I felt so hopeless. It seemed like the worst case scenario was just crashing around me relentlessly all of the time. I've lost about 30 friends to this virus. 
And it seemed like what happened to each one of them was what I was carrying most closely in my heart. And it was a time really of casting out for meaning in all of this, for some reason to continue, some faith. And at first I struck this bargain, it's like I struck this bargain with the virus. I said that if I got better, then I would have faith. If I had faith, (laughs) then I'd get better. And then I just was tripping and stumbling over this agreement all the time, again and again. And it really seems that now I understand it to be a little different. There are no conditions with faith. The faith really is just a momentary thing. There's so much that's unknown. And there's nothing that is guaranteed. There's nothing solid really, it's just moments, one after the other. And I feel that for me, this seems to be the surrendering to faith. And in terms of all this time that I used to spend going around to see healers and going to doctors and for blood tests, it seemed that at some point I could kill myself with the exhaustion of all the people that I was seeing. And I see now that the question of faith there too is important. Just trusting that what I am doing is enough in this moment. For the truth really is that living with this virus is unworkable. If I bring into this moment every ghastly projection and every fear and every possibility that the future might hold. And faith seems to be really, for me, just about this moment now. This breath, this heartbeat, this landscape. And trusting that the next landscape really will take care of itself. How does this faith manifest in the meditation practice? It seems that there is a very important shift that happens at some point. It's very simple and it's very sweet. There comes to be a very deep gratitude for presence in each moment. Before there was perhaps a heaviness and a judgment and a focusing on the negativities and perhaps a frustration with the times when we're not present. And instead, certainly my own experience, I come to know these days a real wonder and an awe and a gratitude for just being present again, now. And it feels like an important shift, and yet a very subtle one too. And it seems also to be the birth of a time of deeper faith, and really happiness too, in the meditation practice. And with it comes a deeper commitment to the meditation, a deeper commitment to being awake. And even when there is confusion and when there is distraction, it is the memory of the times of pure presence that really give the faith and the strength to continue. It's as if those times give us all that we need to continue 
when it's difficult or when it's overwhelming. And we don't have to look too carefully to see that we live in a world in a deep crisis of faith. There is such widespread lack of faith around us. Why is a sure faith so difficult to develop and so hard to find? Trusting for many is so hard to do. It seems like the lack of self-acceptance is often an integral part of the reason for this. And the roots of non-self-acceptance almost always go way back to our childhood. Perhaps we had parents with their own problems and difficulties, making them unable to be there for us and difficult to love us in ways that are healthy. The child is perhaps not considered or validated, perhaps even abused. The child is not accepted. The love that there is is often conditional and conditioned upon expectations of others. And all of this makes a healthy trust and faith difficult and unlikely to easily arise later on in life. Also, we are bombarded so much by the media, by television, by the expectations that surround us, and by all of this violence, all damaging our ability to trust and to listen and to sense, a real numbing seems to happen, inculcating in us often an inability to relax. We pay an enormous price for all of this. We live in a world of such anxiety and such cruelty our environment is in catastrophic shape, as you know. I feel all of this is connected with this question of faith. Lack of faith in our own potential, a lack of faith in one another, a lack of faith in nature, and a lack of faith in a wider sense in the orderliness and interconnectedness of the universe. For well, the healthy child really has an intuitive and instinctive trust of the rhythms of life and of nature. And often we as adults have to really struggle to find this trust again. And so for many, and certainly I speak personally here, life is so often lived as a victim of its circumstances, fighting and struggling, the feeling of really being blown around by the winds that rage. Really the way of faith is different. A life of faith asks this really simple question of itself. What can I learn from this situation? Again and again, in every situation of challenge, the same question, what can I learn from this situation? We know that whatever is happening 
is exactly where we need to be, no matter how difficult. Moving really from a life as punishment to a life as opportunity. It's a radical shift. Faith gives meaning and profound challenge then, I mean profound possibility then, to the challenges that come. With faith we move forward then. This is its nature. They say that faith moves mountains. I love that. There is a deep faith then and trust in this moment. No matter how awful, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging, we know that this is exactly where we need to be. And this is precisely what we're given to learn from. For many, grappling with faith is really central to the spiritual path. And sometimes the faith is there and we feel inspired and have dreams of what we're going to do and where we're going to be and sometimes it's not. And faith then too is of course conditioned and it's impermanent. And here too then we also faced with the challenge of riding out the changes having a long enduring mind that will allow the faith to come and the faith to go. And when considering the question of the lack of faith, really the bottom line is the question of fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. If we're engulfed by fear, there can be no faith. We must know the essence and the truth and all the faces of fear. Fear of pain, death, of loneliness, fear of insecurity, fear of confusion and then fear of fear itself. Fear of not being loved, not being accepted and not being validated. We must recognize the fear label it, feel it, even cellularly if necessary, again and again and again, becoming naked in its presence, really acknowledging any resistance that there might be, and backing off if necessary. For the truth is that it is faith and trust that take us to the edges to the precipice, and this is also the exact place where faith and trust thrive too. Taking risks, going right to the edge, it takes a lot of guts. But what is also true is that it is faith that lets go, and it's the fear that holds on and tries to keep things unmoving. It's the fear that keeps us uncentered and it's the fear that creates that emptiness and that poverty of heart. Can we be a friend of the fear instead of cringing from it? This is such a deep challenge for me personally. This is P. 
Peter, uh, no, this is Rocky. He says, it's a letter that he wrote to a fellow poet. He says, we have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act. Just once, with beauty and with courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. So you must not be frightened if a sadness rises before you, larger than any you've ever seen. If an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and everything that you do, you must realize that something has happened to you. Life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hands and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any misery, or any depression? For after all, you do not know what work these conditions are doing inside of you. And yes, it does seem true that we need to know the darkness. For if we show someone their shadow, we show them their light at the same time. We can never be a victim of what is illuminated. And on the other side of faith is doubt. Doubt can be the big darkness. And here too, it seems that we're called to know the many faces of doubt also. This is Merton, Thomas Merton. He says, the marginal person, the monk, the displaced person, the prisoner, all these people live in the presence of death, which calls into question the meaning of life. She or he struggles with the fact of death in himself or herself, trying to seek something deeper than death, because there is something deeper than death in the office of the monk or the marginal person or the meditative person or the poet. To go beyond death, even in this life, to go beyond the dichotomy of life and death and to be therefore the witness to life. This requires, of course, faith. But as soon as we say faith, we run into another problem. Faith means doubt. Faith is not the suppression of doubt. It is the overcoming of doubt. And you overcome doubt by going through it. Going through the doubt. Struggling to the depths of what Merton calls the big doubt. These are times in the meditation that are so challenging. 
we can be so overwhelmed with the difficulty and with the suffering. It's the feeling that we can't go on, that we've really reached our limit. It's what's been called the dark night of the soul. We feel like we're having experiences that really are quite beyond our capacity to open to them. And this moment is such an important moment in the practice. We need to be able, in this moment of difficulty, to give ourselves permission to back off, to shut down if necessary. This is an act of wisdom. Otherwise, the situation can become unworkable. The doubt arises so strongly, there can be a lack of confidence in ourselves, and we give up. But if we do pull back, if we do back off, we can always return later, rested, stronger, and renewed. And this shutting down and renewing strengthens our faith rather than feeds our doubt. So what is doubt? Let's get clinical here. Michelle uses a wonderful image, an analogy for doubt. She says doubt is like a recipe for a cake. She says you take a little fear, a little discontent, some, sleep, some sleepiness, some boredom, lack of mindfulness, and together all of these lead to a real paralysis, a real exhaustion, perhaps a lack of commitment, hesitancy, all the faces of doubt. And in the doubt, in the grip of doubt, we so often turn against ourselves. I'd like to, if I may speak personally again over here, I'd like to share an experience that has happened over the last two times that I've been sitting here. A number of different factors have made these last retreats that I've done really challenging. There was a lot of what I subtly, and perhaps not so subtly, interpreted as a difficulty with the practice. There's also physical pain and fear, confusion and exhaustion. This is, this is my recipe. <laughs> also profusion of thoughts relating to insecurity insecurity in my ability to deal with the pain and what at times feels like the relentlessness of it. Insecurity in my ability to find balance with the vastness of the suffering. And insecurity also in my ability to share the Dharma in the storm of all that I sometimes feel that I've been given to live with. And what has also been difficult and complicating has been that my health has felt so unreliable and so variable. There's also been a strong chemical reaction to moving off a year and a half of drug therapy. I often have difficulty sleeping too. And these times have created a real deep despair and a hopelessness that on retreat I feel so strongly, a real sort of hell realm. And it was really rough and challenging. And 
the last retreat was in some ways the hardest one I've ever sat. And in the middle of it all, there were some questions that arose. I was listening to a tape by Vimalo, and out of this tape, these questions just came forward, really like thunderbolts of challenge in the middle of the storm. They were like lightning bolts cutting through the storm that felt like it was raging around me. And the question was, do I truly believe that what is happening now is perfectly okay? Do I truly believe that? As it is, am I a victim of what is going on in any way? And it was like there was this immediate disintegration of this gridlock of like tightness. It was just felt like it, it annexed my spirit and my body. And it felt like a light came on and the awareness moved to places that it had not been able to before, energetic and emotional places. And I saw the whole recipe as clear as daylight. Thoughts born of fear and giving birth to more fear. The resistance to fear, the aversion to thoughts, the denial and the resistance to the pain and to the sadness, and the identification then with the thoughts and the identification with the whole process. It just in this, in this time just became so clear it was not a pleasant recipe, <laughs> not appealing at all. But the aftermath of the scene was really incredible. Really seeing somewhat the faces of doubt. The first thing that happened, there was such joy and such buoyancy there. Great happiness in the middle of all of this. There was a huge resurgence of faith, a real feeling of like brightness and renewal relating to the practice. A deep strength of commitment and purpose and conviction. Real feeling of being renewed in my refuge in the Dharma and the Buddha in the Sangha. Wrangling and grappling with faith and doubt. And I've purposely shared this with you in some detail that you might perhaps reflect also and know the many faces of doubt as they were perhaps in your own lives. Let's look analytically at doubt, if we may, for a moment, please. What is sure in my own experience is that in doubt I turn against myself. There are a lot of thoughts, they're usually excursive, excessive and discursive. And let's look at some of these thoughts when the doubt is there. Perhaps they're familiar to you. I can't do this. I'll never get it. I'm failing at the practice. I'm not working hard enough. I hate myself. I'm working too hard. Everyone else can do it, but I can't. And really what is happening here is that the anger and frustration is really being turned inwardly against ourselves. And then we identify with that process. And the other side of the same face are the, are the statements, the meditation practice doesn't work. There's too much noise. There's too little noise. The teachings are not right. The teachers are not right. 
And here again, there's boredom and anger and frustration turned outwards. And identification happens with that too. And in both cases, we're not owning the truth of what is happening. We're not seeing that it is just the anger and the boredom and the other factors that are there. And a further danger when, when doubt is really strong is that there comes to be a shifting of responsibility for freedom outside of ourselves. And the danger of that investment is really enormous. We cling to opinions and to beliefs and even perhaps to the Dharma rather than having a faith verified by our seeing and born of our experience and our understanding. If we believe and if we identify with the voices of doubt, we can use this practice that is so potentially free as a weapon against ourselves. We really kill the heart of the practice. The mind convinces itself, if you will, that freedom is impossible. What a tragedy. And yet I know certainly in my own case that this has been true. My experience also is that our relationship to thoughts is really pivotal in dealing with that. For as the practice deepens, our thoughts at last become less not that they don't occur, because I believe they always will, but really, it's just that we see their value. We see the limitation, and perhaps we see to some degree that they really are empty. No one thinking. And we focus more on the ground from which the thoughts come. We trust the stillness rather than the chatter moving, if you will, to the heart from the mind. For what is true is that if we identify with the voice of doubt and with the thoughts of doubt, this identification obscures the truth and it paralyzes our efforts and perhaps even our spirits. And the question in all of this conflict then, and all of this violence is where is the love? Where is the place of God in the meditation practice? Where is the joy? This is Peter Matheson. He says, Late in Sashin, after six long days of pain, hurling myself to no avail against iron cliffs, I began to wonder why I'd come why I'd persisted year after year with this frustrating practice. A spider hanging from the zendo ceiling, spinning its moo out of its belly, was my echo. I gave up struggling and settled calmly into moment-by-moment moment quiet, breath after breath. Soon I was liked and taught, at one with pain as I was with breathing, with incense, far crows, and the autumn wind. Small silver breaths, further and further apart, 
scoured the last tatters of thought and emotion from the inside of my skull. Now a silent bell. Very suddenly on an inhaled breath this earthbound body-mind in great hush began to swell and fragment and dissolve in light, expanding outward into a fresh universe and the very process of creation. At the bell ending this period, this perspective ended, yet those clear moments had been an experience that everything was here, now, contained in me. I mourned that bell that came so swiftly and tried to cheer myself during the walking meditation. Who me? I murmured right out loud and began to laugh. The laughter quickly turned to weeping and with the tears came a sudden rush of love for everyone and everything without distinction. This feeling was instantly followed by a rush of doubt. Had I really perceived something? All this damn soggy weeping. Had my mind gone soft? The doubt came sweeping back again. Perhaps I was wanting such experiences too badly. Perhaps I was exaggerating everything. I was filled with gratitude and at the same time felt frustrated and aborted. This experience, valid or otherwise, had scarcely started before being cut off by that bell, which, had it come even a few minutes later, might have rung those cliffs of iron down around my head. this doubt as fully as any other aspect of our experience. Just the next landscape, just the next friend, the next cloud, the next bubble. Really, just like the thoughts, the sounds, the sensation, all empty phenomena rolling on, as Joseph says. For the deepening of faith, really, there does need to be, though, some healing of the lack of self-acceptance. Not to recondition the mind again, but rather to balance out the old ways. To counterbalance the tendency, if we will, the tendency to self-criticism, to guilt, to unworthiness, and to self-condemnation. So that we can see more clearly perhaps in a new way. The meditation practice that we do here is about being more accepting and allowing of all that arises. And this must include all the faces of whatever non-self-acceptance there might be. That really we might feel the pain and the suffering of this inner violence and this inner conflict that our heart perhaps may one day whisper no more and let go. This, I feel, is a moment of purest faith. Jajeno says, try everything and then faith. And it would seem really in closing that the degree to which there is a consolidation of inner faith is the degree to which we can know an outer faith also, a faith in humankind, 
and a faith also in our world. This faith is the gift that we give to one another and that we might possibly bring to the world. For the illumination and the brightness of our faith can be a permission for others to touch and know their own capacity and their reservoir of faithfulness and trust and confidence. And in a world so lacking in trust, so much in a crisis of faith, our faith and our spirit is vital. I'll never forget the words of Nelson Mandela soon after he was released from 20 years of imprisonment in South Africa where I was born. Somebody said to him, how is it that you can now sit down with those who jailed you for 21 years? How can you now negotiate the freedom of your people with those who kept you in prison? And he said, ultimately, he said, we are a forgiving people. Like this is such a statement of faith in humanity. Real personal inspiration for me. I'd like to close with a few excerpts from one of Christopher Titmus's interviews. Dr. Sheila Cassidy was um, arrested and tortured in Chile for treating a man hunted by the secret police there and she's now the medical director of St. Luke's Hospice in Plymouth. She says, Some years ago I entered a convent wanting to get closer to God, but I failed. It didn't work for me. I was very unhappy and I left. Here in an ordinary suburban city, I see such goodness from ordinary people. The father of the young woman who died came to the hospice today to pick up his daughter's remaining possessions and the death certificate. He came in his best suit. He was so grateful. I told him that he'd been wonderful and so supportive. And he said, well, I sat there with my daughter. Sometimes she would be horrible to me, but I knew she didn't mean it, so I just took it. There is such a selflessness in that. Selflessness is one of the holiest things. What reinforces my faith is the selflessness that can be elicited out of very ordinary people. I find that to be a very holy thing. I see so many people who are totally giving. One of the nice things about being here is that you meet people stripped of pretense and in the raw. Some of them are very selfish, but you also see so many people who are so lovely. I find that miraculous. I think the world is bloody marvelous and people are lovely. And it's not that I don't know that people are wounded and fragile, but I believe they are fundamentally good. I worship the unseen face of God, she says. What makes me want to lie on my face in the dark is talk of the unseen transcendent God. I've been looking a lot lately at the risen Christ and that has become meaningful for me. But what gets me in my religious guts is the sense of the unseen God. That is the God before whom I prostrate. I'm turned on by the mystics. My experience of God gives me a joy beyond all knowing. The central thing is to do, really though, with the love of God. 
I suppose that one can experience God in very beautiful surroundings, such as when listening to beautiful music or watching a sunset. But you can also experience his presence in very ordinary surroundings. I went to London last week to give a lecture and I sat in an empty tube train going from A to B. I had a tremendous sense of the presence of God, of loving him and being loved. I felt quite overwhelmed, though at the same time quite aware of where I was. I value that kind of experience more than those which come in a more romantic setting. If I experience God when I am desperate with insomnia, or crying, or in the tube, or the car, it seems a more stripped-down sort of encounter than in the middle of a sunset or a beautiful liturgy. I think that's why I would pray by choice in the dark or in an empty room. Words like dazzling dark make me want to lie on the floor and pray. Sometimes I'm scared that I kid myself. I don't spend an hour praying every morning. I think if I was really spiritual, I would spend an hour every morning and every night praying. In practice, maybe I spend half an hour or 20 minutes. doesn't feel like enough, but I can't cope with any more at the moment. I can cope with more when I'm on holiday. Sometimes I worry about that. Sometimes I don't. I don't pray with words, she says. I pray by sitting and opening up myself to God. It's just sitting there. I pray with the odd word. I haven't prayed with words for years and years. I've never been desperately into saying prayers. There is, though, a certain spiritual pride which comes through praying without words. So I think it is good for me to be able to pray with words also. But the only sorts of words I seem to use are help, or more often, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.